when they're sitting in biology, they think that my faith depends on this and mm -hmm. I'm choosing God or I'm walking away from him. And my intelligent mind says some of this seems legit and it's like a black and white choice. And um, I would say to anybody listening, you know, if it's not you, you know, students, you have kids, you have nieces and nephews or friends in school. All of them are challenged with this at some point. And I would share it with them just so they can hear Dr. Rana's words that there's other choices to look into outside the classroom. And then these words is your faith does not depend on your view of creation. You can be a hundred percent wrong on creation. You don't have to sacrifice your relationship with Christ over it. Counted among the outlaws, he said, come follow me. People from all walks of life since have been becoming outlaws. Welcome to another episode of Becoming Outlaws podcast which engages celebrities, scholars, and diverse voices in candid conversations about following Jesus, defying societal norms, and exploring profound, and sometimes not so profound, questions of faith. In today's episode, we're going to hit some questions of creation. With the help of a guest, uh, we're going to give an overview of what the predominant views are in this area. It's a hot topic in Christian culture with heated debates sometimes, sometimes pointing the finger and claiming the other group's not even Christian. Come on, people. So we're going to see what other people believe or what some of the views are. Maybe you've thought about it. Maybe you haven't. But I think uh, I always feel like, and most people feel, if we don't reflect on history, we are liable to repeat it. So I'll tell you a little history story to give us the mindset before going into these different views. So this is a true story. In the 1600s, the church at that time had a predominant view that the earth was stationary and the center of the universe. This was not based on science, but it was based on scripture. It was based on Psalms 104, chapter 104, verse 5, that states, you fix the earth on its foundation so it can never be shaken. Well, Galileo at that time was uh, really convicted of heresy by the church because he was claiming that earth was not stationary and that actually the sun was stationary and planets were rotating around it. Uh, he was considered a heretic and he was put under house arrest until his death. And it wasn't until 1992, 1992 from the 1600s when Pope John Paul II admitted the church was wrong and Galileo was, in fact, correct. The scripture verse is true in what it was intended to mean, but not meant to be stated as a literal scientific fact. Science and faith should never be at odds. Our faith at, that we can agree on for sure is that God created everything. And science is the discovery of how everything works that God created. If science doesn't seem to line up with scripture, the science is off, or we have to have the humility to back up and maybe we're off and perhaps we misread scripture. I think that's how we should approach these topics that are not crucial to our salvation anyway, in the areas that God wasn't that clear on. There's a little room for mystery here. But to help us along is uh, we're welcoming back Dr. Rana, he says I can call him Fuzz. I'm really going to try, but I have a hard time. Um, Dr. Rana is a biochemist. Uh, he's a president and CEO and the senior scholar of Reasons to Believe. Uh, it's an organization dedicated to communicating the proofs and the case for Christianity. His books include Humans 2.0, The Cell's Design, and Fit for a Purpose. And you may recall, and if not, you should go back and watch it. We've had him on before about his book, The Cell's Design. And that episode was called What the Cell? And it was pretty engaging. <laughs> Welcome back, Fuzz. Uh, Ken, thanks for having me. <laughs> sure. I was looking forward to this. You guys are always fun. You're fun. I love having Dr. Ross on. Um, you guys are hard to keep up with, though, but I, I do my best. <laughs> so let's start. Let's move through this pretty quick because I'd like to get through several um, 
this one I know if we really have to spend that much time on because most people would know what this is, right? Naturalistic evolution. What's what's the prominent idea behind that? Yeah. Well, the, the view here is that the the origin and the history and the design of living organisms are the product of a of a mechanistic evolutionary process. And the the idea behind this view is that there really isn't a fundamental purpose or a fundamental end goal of the evolutionary process. It is a unguided, undirected process that is sometimes referred to as being historically contingent, meaning that it, it's predicated on a sequence of chance events. And that if you rewind the tape of line, life and let evolution run again, the likely outcome is gonna be very different every time because again, it's the likelihood of repeating those e the exact sequence of chance events is extremely remote. So this is a, you know, a, a model that is, uh, you know, really the prevalent view of, within the scientific community. And there are some people who hold this view who would argue that naturalistic evolution makes belief in God, you know, virtually impossible. Others would argue that the, that naturalistic evolution is really um, uh, agnostic on whether or not God exists. Uh, but even if God exists he's and is responsible for evolution, it's very clear that there's no real direction uh, that the evolutionary process is taking. So that would be this view in a, in a nutshell. And that's what we would call, more people be familiar with just Darwinism. Yeah. Although we want to be careful about using the term Darwinism because, believe it or not, most evolutionary biologists today are, strictly speaking, not Darwinists, meaning that Darwin's specific ideas about evolution uh, are have been supplanted by a much more diverse sophist and sophisticated collection of ideas as to how the evolutionary process transpires. So oftentimes people will talk about Darwinian evolution or neo-Darwinian evolution. But technically speaking, my experience is today, evolutionary biology has really moved beyond, far beyond Darwin's original concepts. And I'm not thinking of the, the terms on the top of my head, but there is room for, the church sometimes just rejects evolution completely Right. When then how did we all end up with different skin tones and there's different right. species of animals? So what's the term that we do? You almost hate to use the word evolve. It's become so negative, negative, but expands that the world's always expanding life. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm oftentimes I'm an old earth creationist. And I'm oftentimes labeled as anti-evolution. But towards your question, I like to think about evolution by thinking about different categories of evolutionary change. So what you're referring to would be sometimes called microevolution, uh, or sometimes people like to use the term adaptation. That's what I was thinking in, of. Involve essentially variation that takes place within a species in response usually to changes in the environment, let's say. So the, the change in the, the wing color of the peppered moth in response to pollutants in the environment would be an example of microevolution, which is a, a, a form of evolution that I'm completely comfortable with, of course. And then the next level would be speciation, where these same mechanisms operate uh, in such a way that one species will evolve to give rise to sister species. So another example of this from a textbook would be the Galapagos finches. That's an example of speciation. Again, I don't have any issue with that. That's very clearly something well-established. Another category that I think is well-established would be evolution happening with microorganisms, bacteria acquire antibiotic resistance. Um, now, the precise mechanism that, of that is complex, but that is, again, a, 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 a well-documented form of evolution. You know, where I think there's a basis for skepticism from a scientific perspective would be what would be called chemical evolution, the idea that molecules could self-organize into cells. And I'm also skeptical about the, the about facets of macroevolution where one species, one major group gives rise to another major group. That's another place where I don't think the scientific data is 
as strong in support of that notion as possible. So the point that you're raising that I think is really important is for people to ask the question, what is actually being referred to with respect to microevolution or with respect to evolution? Yeah. And so uh, even people that are skeptical about aspects of the evolutionary paradigm do indeed accept uh, portions of even you know, naturalistic uh, mechanisms for evolution. So is this a simplistic way to look at it for uh, us lay people is there's the microevolution, which is living things evolving into other things as opposed to, I'm going to go ahead and say Darwinian evolution. It's just easier for me, but naturalistic sure. evolution, which comes from a, everyone comes from a common ancestry, which goes back to apes, which goes all the way back to, an original amoeba or whatever that's the difference and origin of life doesn't darwinism not explain even if evolution was true an origin of life yeah and, and this is something that um you know uh people will debate which is you know is evolutionary theory really addressing the origin of life and a lot of people say no it really isn't it's really addressing what happens after life originates i wouldn't agree with that entirely, uh, simply because I, I think if you're adopting a strictly naturalistic model for evolution, then there is a continuum between the molecules on the early earth and the emergence of the very first cell and the evolutionary history that proceeds afterwards. Where you draw the line becomes largely arbitrary, right? And so, and also within what you might call the evolutionary paradigm, uh, indeed, that model does claim that even the origin of life is through some kind of evolutionary, naturalistic, mechanistic process. Um, but, you know, to be fair, there are people that are that do really try to separate or distinguish those two areas. Uh, and in your point also about essentially it's called universal common descent. That's very much part of naturalistic evolution is that you know, everything ultimately traces its origin back to what's called the last universal common ancestor, which is a single-celled organism that presumably anchors the evolutionary tree of life. Uh, so you, you might refer to it as scuzz to fuzz evolution, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but, but that's really very much endemic in naturalistic evolution. Whereas somebody like me, who has some skepticism about evolution, would refer to it as limited common descent, where I do see, again, some evolutionary ancestry in the in the history of life, but that it's limited. It's not universal. Right. This would be a good transition into um, evolutionary creationism. So let me go into that by asking this question. Maybe it's more of a philosophical question. I don't know, but they go hand in hand. So with the with atheist comic, so we, we're going to go into, which you'll explain, the concepts of groups of Christians that believe evolution is correct by science, but it wasn't random that that's the way God, God initiated the life and he oversaw this evolutionary process. So God's involved. But would you say the difference between the atheist view of evolution and the Christian view of evolution or any creation comes at however the first life came about. Was it a big bang or was it this molecule or me, but whatever that if it formed with no purpose, just random circumstance mm -hmm. chance, then everything that has happened has been kind of random circumstantial. And we all then if you have a, purposeless creation, our lives ultimately are purposeless mm -hmm. and don't have meaning. And that's atheist. Yes. If you take that God created in six days, God created in millions of years, billions of years, or God created through his evolutionary process, whatever, if you start with God, or if you start with at all, that creation has a purpose. You don't just start without God for a minute something initiated with purpose and intent, mm -hmm. then it implies at least something outside of nature with intelligence 
created something with purpose. Therefore, all of creation has purpose. And then every one of us has purpose and meaning in our lives. Yes. Um, and to me, that's the biggest difference in how the Bible starts is in the beginning, God created. Mm -hmm. And that just means everything or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the, the view that you're referring to would be sometimes called theistic evolution. A more recent term that's I see used is evolutionary creation. Uh, so these are two roughly equivalent terms. Um, and the, the bottom line, what these, this perspective argues is that evolution, the evolutionary process was designed by God and that God is using evolution as a means to create. Now, it's really a spectrum of views. There's not a single viewpoint underneath this umbrella. Some people would say, you know, God created the evolutionary process and let it run. And it was, the outcome was random and that eventually some creature emerges, humans, that has the, the intellectual capacity to enter into a relationship with God and then God somehow supernaturally intervenes to create a spirit in, in that creature. That's one view. Others would say God is intimately at work uh, in the evolutionary process. It's nothing is random. Uh, he's actively at work orchestrating the evolutionary history of life. The problem is that uh, there's nothing in the nature of the evolutionary mechanism that suggests it's actually a mechanism that has purpose. As I said, most evolutionary biologists see it as an unguided, undirected process with no ultimate end goal. End goal. So these people would say, well, God is working at a way that is indivis invisible to us, maybe at the level of quantum indeterminacy to, to regulate or direct the evolutionary process. And then there are some people who say, no, the evolutionary process actually, contrary to what mainstream biologists say, actually is a directional process that clearly it is purposeful in mind. And, and there's a, a number of, uh, again, scientists who are Christians who would take that particular view. That view, uh, again, is not a view that it would be supported by mainstream biologists who would see evolution as strictly a natural process, because again, they would say there isn't really evidence for directionality or purpose in evolution. So this would be a place where these evolutionary creationists are actually departing from uh, the mainstream view. So it really is a spectrum of views uh, that can be a little bit maddening at times as you try to make sense of what a, a, an individual person who holds that view would, would be ascribing to. But the bottom line is that what it all shares in, in common, all these three perspectives or this range of perspectives share in common is really the idea that evolution is a process God created and that he used in some manner to bring about his creative purposes. Yeah. And the reason you'll get to the reasons to believe stance, but a current organization would be BioLogos. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know, like um, it's a foundation that was started by Francis Collins. Uh, and it used to be the guy who uh, mapped the human genome. Now it's a uh, Fauci's boss. Yeah. <laughs> People, oh, really? That's the connection. That's easier to make. Uh, and someone who subscribed also to that kind of thinking that people may recognize was Tim Keller. Mm -hmm. uh, N.T. Wright. Yes. Goes along those lines. And I don't know if you know or remember, but I worked for BioLogos for four months as their chief development officer. I remember this now. And only four months because I didn't agree and that didn't sit well. <laughs> You can imagine I didn't fit in with staff very well. And the reason I had the issue was I'm not going to throw biologists under the bus or my jobs and stuff, but my intention was, Hey, I'll get in an org. I didn't know that much about any of these actually, but was, Hey, just groups that debate other groups like yourselves with an open discussion to help kids in school have some information when all they're hearing is naturalistic evolution. That's what I supported. It wasn't so much their stance on this, but my biggest objection that didn't sit well initially was that if you, we don't have time on this program here, but if you go down that road scripturally, 
you begin to take away that um, that Adam was a singular fall, that sin, death came through sin, sin came through Adam, and Christ is the second Adam who was sinless. It starts to break down the theology Paul's presenting, mm -hmm. and you almost have to rewrite Romans when you start to follow um, evolutionary creationism, I found, and I didn't find a good answer to that, just step-arounds and almost an ignoring theology and pointing you back to science. Yeah. To me, as you know, they have to go together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that would be one of my hesitancies with embracing evolutionary creation is that, that very issue that you're raising. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I'm friends with many of the people that work at BioLogos. I consider them brothers and sisters in Christ. They, many of the people there really love the Lord Jesus, and they just have convictions that evolution is really the way in which the history of life unfurled. But the problem is, is that you really are forced to make some theological concessions. And to be fair, you know, many of the people at Biologos recognize the theological shortcomings of that their issue of their position and are actively trying to address those shortcomings, but I've just not seen them do that right. in a way that's satisfying to me personally. Uh, you know, but it is a a position that, uh, as you point out, a number of prominent Christians embrace. And, you know, they 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 have reasons that they embrace that position. Those reasons are primarily uh, driven by what they see the science is saying. Yeah. I'll go to this next one uh, since we're talking about prominent Christians. This one also had some prominent Christians behind it um, that would surprise people. Because I think in general Christian culture, Sunday school church, let's say, uh, evolution, secular, six-day creation, biblical. And a lot of it is a lack of information on anything else. Yeah. So I think people... so. The six day creation people, and I'm not even putting, I'm putting myself in none of these categories because honestly, I don't know. <laughs> Being honest on this one, I don't have a dog in this fight, but I will tell you the one that I, I've always liked the best. And it's not even one of the top ones, but I just feel good about it. But um, old earth creationism, which I think you're going to highlight here, people may be surprised that C.S. Lewis, um, Pat Robertson, um, Billy Graham never said he was an old earth creationist. Old earth creationist people would be that uh, not necessarily a six day creation, that the earth is actually very old, um, as scientists would say. But Billy Graham even suggested that there's no conflict between the idea of an old earth and, um, and the Christian faith. And I know reasons to believe uh, for sure, Hugh Ross, and I believe yourself, that this would be your stance. So mm -hmm. what is old earth creationism and, and why do you land on this one? Yeah. Well, the, the idea behind old earth creationism is that uh, the data that comes from science for the antiquity of the universe, the antiquity of the earth, the antiquity of life on earth is viewed as being sound. And, and so the idea is that the earth really is old. The universe really is old. And that uh, many old earth creationists, not everyone, would view Genesis 1 as being historical, where the days simply refer to periods of time as opposed to, you know, 24 hours or a calendar as a calendar day. Okay, can I pause you right there? Yeah. So I'll tell you first my understanding, and then I'm going to specifically ask about that 24 hours. So I happen to know that um, in Hebrew, the word day doesn't necessarily mean so part of reading scripture that is confusing to us is in our minds, we read it in contemporary culture in English. And we think we know what it means when it was written in uh, antiquity by ancient civilizations in Hebrew that don't have matching words. So you have a word like day that could mean day. And, and what I've heard with the young earth creationists say is one of their or at least I listened to this one YouTube and their whole point of proving it was a 24 hour period is that most of the time in scripture, the word day is used for an actual day. 
well, that doesn't mean anything. Because if the word day can mean an extended period of time, like the day of the Lord, or like a period of time, it doesn't matter how often it's used. It may only be relevant this one time. So it's used one time. So day, as you know, is uh, not necessarily in Hebrew a 24-hour period. But my question is, then why does it say morning and evening? Yeah. Like by putting an exclamation point on this is a day as you know it. Yeah. Well, the, the, I'm not a, a biblical scholar, so I'm, I'm relying on what I read from, from biblical scholars and the people that I've had a chance to interact with working at Reasons to Believe who are biblical scholars. And w- one explanation that I've heard is that, uh, that if it was actually, if evening and morning were being used to connote that the, the creation day was 24 hours, the expression should be, and it was evening and it was evening, right? Because in the Hebrew uh, framework, a day began in the evening and ended the next evening. That was, would have been 24 hours. And so the fact that it says there was evening and there was morning is really a, a, a clue that maybe something else is going on here. Uh, and, and in fact, I've heard uh, some scholars say that with Hebrew, there is actually a image a, a, associated with words. There is a, a picture associated with words. And the thought is that what's being communicated there is that what was un, we were unable to see, that is evening, became that which be, was visible. So in other words, you know, God is engaged in his act of creation and that the summary of that day of creation would be bringing it all together, saying that which could not be seen became that which could be seen. And then, of course, we have the seventh day where God rests and there's no evening and there's no morning, implying that we still are in the seventh day. And there's other passages of scripture that make reference to that. So that idea that there was evening and morning doesn't immediately mean that that day must be 24 hours or a calendar day. And in fact, I heard a Walt Kaiser once argue, he was a, is a very prominent Old Testament scholar, that on the first day of creation, a day was created. In other words, on the first day of creation or the first creation day, a calendar day was created where light was separated from darkness and light was called day, darkness was called night. And so his argument is that the creation day must be something other than 24 hours if the first day of creation was created, uh, you know, on that day of creation. And by the way, the word yom is also used uh, in Genesis 2, 1 or 2, 2, which is a summary. Actually, the, the Genesis 1 creation account extends into Genesis 2, the first two or three verses. But there, there's a reference of, of, of to, to the totality of the creation week, if you will, uh, where yom is used to refer to that entirety of the creation week presented in Genesis 1. Uh, so there's an there are two examples of yom being used in that immediate context where they are clearly referring to something other than a calendar day. So in old earth creationism, your view would be that it's clearly an old earth by science. And here's where for all the we're getting to the young earth creationism people, if that's where you stand, and most of you probably do. So if you haven't tuned out yet, just give us ear is that one beef I have with young earth creationism is the tone, I guess, is like, they'll say, well, we're the biblical create where they call themselves the biblical creation (laughs) as if nothing else is a biblical view. Even with some of my best friends, friend, I'll try to have, let's say this conversation we're having. And if I go anything beyond a conversation, whether I believe in it or not, a six day creation, I get stopped because it's, I believe the Bible without hearing. Yeah. But are you reading the Bible correctly? Um, it doesn't, I'm going off on a tangent, but, uh, yeah. l- let me go down this tangent road for a little bit for those listeners. Cause, cause you know, the majority just believe six day creation or never thought about it. And then this is almost heresy. We are talking about different things. 
And I've even, and I guess, cause every time I do a podcast, I do a little homework. I listen to other scholars, theologians on these topics, all different views. So I kind of have a pretty good idea and I don't even have to go by notes. Usually I just can kind of talk, but what I heard over and over again from the six day young earth creationist is really kind of a chip on the shoulder anger and pointing the finger as if the other views aren't questioning if you can be Christian in view view in an old earth. Can you be Christian and view evolutionary creationism? So I'm doing a rabbit trail, but for those that are listening, if you have those kind of thoughts, let me ask you this. The thief on the cross, Jesus is crucified with two other people who deserve to be killed. Well, nobody deserves to be um, <laughs> executed in that way, <laughs> crucified, but whatever. So they're being killed. One of them addresses and he says, Lord, remember me when you go into your kingdom. Jesus' reply was not, what's your view on creation? This man, according to Romans, acknowledged Jesus is Lord and submitted to his lordship and asked to be in his kingdom. You're in. The only thing that's missing from Romans and how to be saved is if you believe in your heart, Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, at that point, he hadn't died yet, right? So, But he did everything else. It didn't come up. Do you believe on what? What's your view on creation, sir? Uh, and then we'll let you know. So this Christian stuff kind of makes me mad. These are topics that Christianity is based on. Do you acknowledge you're a sinner and Jesus is your Savior, and do you receive Him as that? Done. These other topics, if it Paul Jesus, somebody would have made it clear that salvation depends on this. Nobody did. And if it did, that'd be a cruel trick because it's not clear. We have so many intelligent people like yourselves saying the exact opposite. N.T. Wright is saying, Francis Collins, these guys are no dum-dums. And um, that's my tangent to like take the temperature down a little bit on these topics. And if you're a hundred percent young earth creationism, great. If you don't want to listen to people, great, but don't judge their eternal salvation on it. Um, yeah. well, well, you know, I mean, your point is really a, a strong point, Ken. And in fact, this past weekend, I was at Denver Theological Seminary, and we were doing a conference uh, on human origins in Christianity, and I represented the old earth creationist view. And we had three other people that were representing an evolutionary creationist view, and, and, and so three of the four presenters thought that God used evolution as a means to create. Uh, I took the view that there was a real historical Adam and Eve that were the first humans created by God in his image and gave rise to all humanity. Uh, there were two other people that held to a historical uh, Adam and Eve, and one person that said Adam and Eve were mythical, but they all saw God using evolution as a way to create, and they all had a very strong commitment uh, to the lordship of of Jesus Christ. And they all three had, uh, in addition to me, all all of us had a very strong commitment that science and the Christian faith are in harmony with each other. We were just simply presenting very different models uh, for how God would have brought about his creative purposes with regard to the origin of humanity. But the larger point connecting to the point you're making is that for a young person who is wondering, how does my faith as a Christian intersect with, with science? There were landing spots that, that that young person could have depending upon their, their theological convictions about the nature of Genesis 1 uh, the the historicity of Adam and Eve, and you know, and how do we make sense of the genre of Genesis one? What about you know, as you're bringing up earlier, the the theological views of Paul? Uh, so the point is, is that young people have a place to land. If you take the view that my way is the only way, then what you're doing is you are creating problems for a young person who may actually come to a very different conviction than, let's say, the idea of young earth creationism. And if you take that position that my way is the only way, it's very hard to have these open conversations 
where we work together to try to figure out what is the best model for how to make sense of all of this. Uh, and there are models that make sense of it. There are some that I prefer and some that I don't prefer. But just because I prefer one model doesn't mean that somebody else can't legitimately prefer a model that I'm not convinced by, right? And so we create these landing spots that have integrity. And, and this is very important. But when we adopt a position that our way is the only way, that other positions are anti-biblical, what we do is we, we run the risk of creating a divisive environment that becomes characterized by animosity and vitriol that keeps pastors from wanting to have these conversations in their congregations. And the people that lose are the young people who are going to wind up having to make decisions and are going to probably be confronted with things that come from science when they go to college that they don't know how to process. And they, they end up walking away from yeah. their faith as opposed to being secure in their faith because they realize, hey, there are options. Right. <laughs> there are options that I have that, and, and that I don't have to give up my faith and, and embrace science, that there are ways to do that with integrity. That's why it matters to me so much. So before we were recording, I was telling you, you know, this topic I'm not the best on because it was never interests me that much because I didn't need to know this to be a believer. I came in um, experiencing Christ through different revelation, and it wasn't through science had to prove it to my mind first, and it led me down a path. It was an after thing. So it's more just like um, interesting. But where I have a little fervor about it is people in the classrooms, starting in grade school through college, where they hear one naturalistic evolution, not necessarily because it's true, is because you can't teach anything else or it's religion, even if the information adds up to, well, there's other different theories, but we would have to imply there's a supernatural force has done this or natural intelligence. In my view, what would be fair education is to say, here's Darwinism or whatever you want to call it. And then here's views beyond that, but it would take something beyond metaphysical with intelligence, but that's as far as we're allowed to take it because you go into religion, but let people know it at least ends there. Like that's a possibility. And in, as far as like Christian kids in school, it really makes me angry because they're faced with, and with this rhetoric that's stirring me up is, are you Christian? You can't be Christian if you believe in this or that, because then they hear that in church by their leaders. And they think in, when they're sitting in biology, they think that my faith depends on this and mm -hmm. I'm choosing God or I'm walking away from him. And my intelligent mind says, some of this seems legit and it's like a black and white choice. And um, I would say to anybody listening, you know, if it's not you, you know, students, you have kids, you have nieces and nephews or friends in school all of them are challenged with this at some point. And I would share it with them just so they can hear Dr. Rana's words that there's other choices to look into outside the classroom. And then these words is your faith does not depend on your view of creation. You can be a hundred percent wrong on creation. You don't have to sacrifice your relationship with Christ over it. Yeah, that that's, that's well said. And, and, and that's where I come down on it. I, and again, I, hold my view strongly. I'm convinced that my view is indeed correct, but I, I don't think my view is a litmus test, as you're pointing out, uh, for somebody's salvation. And I think we, we want to be humble and we want to have charity towards one another as we wrestle through how science and faith precisely fit together. I think that there is no question that many of the ideas that we see in scripture harmonize with the discoveries in science in very powerful ways, uh, which gives us confidence that what we see in scripture is true. We, we're, we have good reasons from science to think that indeed there is a creator and that creator is very much likely to be the God of the Bible. Um, so there's there are good reasons, but when we're trying to put together the specific details of of, of the, are the models that we hold to, it's a very complex enterprise. How do we understand the genre of Genesis 1? 
Again, is a histor historical Adam and Eve essential to the Christian faith? And if so, what is the, the range of parameters? These are complex issues that very brilliant people are engaging and wrestling with. Uh, and, you know, um, what is the mode of action for how God creates? Is it through process? Is it through intervention? Is it some combination of these things? And the list goes on and on and on. So this, this is a very complex enterprise that people are engaged in. But the, the, what's exciting to me is that there are, again, viable models that really give everybody a choice. You are able to, to settle into a position that makes the most sense to you, depending on how you're weighing the different arguments and different evidences. And I'm completely comfortable if somebody, again, holds a position different from mine, yeah. if, if that position may, gives them security in their faith. To me, the tragedy is to, to create a stumbling block for somebody so that if they feel as if they if they reject our, my position or another position, they can't be a Christian. As you're pointing out, that is a, a real travesty and it's unnecessary. It's completely unnecessary. Right. Yeah. And I didn't do for time. I feel like we should move on. I didn't allow you to really justify your position. You can throw in anything you want, but I would like to say that at reasons.org, uh, you'll find lots of materials, blogs, podcasts, books that deal on other science issues, but a lot on, uh, or they could look at the, um, that particular old earth creationism. And I will say one thing I learned from Biologos that I did agree with, and that I use often when I talk to uh, young earth creationism people is, because they'll say, well, I believe God can do magic tricks. You know, basically, sure, he could pop everything up in six days. He's God. Sure, that's an answer to everything, I suppose. It doesn't seem the way the way he works throughout other scripture, which is even through human lives, he works through generations and time. Yeah. I don't subscribe to the evolutionary creationism. However, I would say that I do agree with um, that if the earth in the universe isn't old, he sure created it to look old. Yeah. Because you can't make stars. Stars take a long time. Yeah. All of that takes a long, long time. And then, of course, an argument would be, well, he didn't make Adam a baby. Um, he started him as a man. Oh, well, I guess you can do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and and let me really real, real quickly yeah. just give some justification for my. I'm position. here all night. It's your time. I'm yeah, yeah and, then, and then we can then we can move on. But <laughs> um, you know, but the bottom line is that again, as an old Earth creationist, I'm convinced of the scientific evidence for the antiquity of the universe, the Earth, and life on Earth. Uh, but for, for scientific reasons, I'm not completely convinced that evolutionary mechanisms can fully account for the origin and the design and the history of life. I, there appear to be places to me where evolutionary theory breaks down when trying to explain some of the key transitions in life's history. And, and so for that reason, I think that, again, some measure of skepticism about the grand claims of evolution are justified. I also think that the design that we see in biology and in biochemistry is bona fide authentic design, that it's not the appearance of design, but it's bona fide design. And so those are reasons why I, I, I am in the old earth creationist camp. But again, I don't reject the evolutionary paradigm wholesale. There are aspects of the evolutionary paradigm that I do believe are uh, are successful and it, it I see God working through a combination of intervening as well as allowing natural process evolution to unfold. So it's really a you know a a, a perspective that uh, is kind of in between you know an anti-evolution view and a view that is you know, um, you know, whole, embracing evolutionary theory wholesale. It's kind of an in-between position. And I agree with you that for theological purposes and for the genealogy structure of all of scripture, there has to be a historical Adam. Mm -hmm. And um, before we move on, having said that, as brief as you can, how do you explain then like uh, Neanderthals? 
Right. Well, I mean, our particular view is that the creatures like Neanderthals were real creatures that existed. We don't see them as evolutionary intermediates to humans, but rather we see them as part of God's creation. These are creatures that had some measure of intelligence and emotional capacity. The precise degree of their cognitive abilities is debated uh, by, by the scientific community. So we had to take the view that these creatures, again, were intelligent and had emotionally rich lives, but that they lacked the image of God, that only human beings bear God's image, uh, which technically I think uh, that, that Adam and Eve and their descendants were what we would call scientifically, anatomically, and behaviorally modern humans. So that's how we would make sense of them, is that they are, again, uh, creatures that lacked the image of God, though they had intelligence. And they did share some common features with us, but we just see that those shared features as reflecting common design as opposed to common descent. So not evolution between apes and modern humans, a different species pre-Adam. Yes. And that Adam is the first one made in the image of God, a whole new creation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we still got young earth and I'd like to touch on intelligent design because I, I have a sure. question about that, but sure. I do want to real quick give mine. So, so I'm going to tell you about this one, even though you know it, cause it's the only one I know pretty well. So when I was younger, I was, uh, you know, like Hugh Ross says when he was a kid, he's reading all these astrophysics books or whatever. So I mean, I was a kid and I'm reading, um, all this Bible literature <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, from apocalypse uh, Hal Lindsey stuff to just reading through the entire cyclopedias of scripture. They did whatever. I was just, I was a weird kid. And one of them was Jimmy Swigert had, I don't know, some kind of school or course. I don't know what it was, but there are these big thick bound study courses. And it'd be like just the book of Daniel, for instance. And there was, and I'd go through it and fill in all the answers. And one was, I don't know if he called it the gap theory or if I learned it later, but I thought I like that. And so people who don't know what the gap theory is, uh, just in real brief, it's old earth. And the idea, if I get the details right, is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if I remember correctly, in Hebrew, there's not a period or whatever. There's like a reba, some kind of punctuation mark, which is a placeholder for an unknown period of time. Verse two says, now the earth was without form and void. Later in scripture, scripture says that God creates nothing form and void. So it looks like somewhere between verse one and two, his creation in verse two something catastrophic happened and it was flooded, whatever. And then fast forward. Oh, and by the time we get to garden of Eden, it seems like right away, the creation supposedly says recreation, Mm -hmm. that there was something before, which would explain Neanderthals and all this Mm -hmm. kind of bones we find of other things. And it explains why not a snake, but I think if we study the Hebrew, you'll find out just uh, some kind of appearance of Lucifer in the garden talking to Adam and Eve, he's already fallen. He's already a deceiver. Um, and that that's, and if we read about his fall in scripture where he wanted to ascend to the mountain of God, well, he was on earth ruling there with some kind of substandard Neanderthals or something going on with a third of the angels. And then he wanted to rebel and he got cast down. And if that is talking about Lucifer and not a king of Persia or whatever it is, then it, this is the kings of the nations were like, who is this? He's fallen to nothing. Well, what kings of the nations? What are they talking about? Well, that maybe Lucifer fell mm-hmm. and these subhuman things or whatever saw him fall. It all got flooded by water, wiped out. Now verse two happens. Who knows how many, how many years later? Right. And now he just recedes the waters and the mountains are already there. Satan's already there. And he does this new beautiful creation of Adam and begins a garden. That's basically the gap theory that there's a gap between verse one and two. And I loved that. It just totally made sense to me. And then smart people like you and Hugh Ross, or even the bio logos, nobody talks about the gap theory. 
And I'm like, so off the top of your head, is there like one or two reasons that gets dismissed or is it very similar? It is old earth. Yeah. Or to me, it just seems like it was kind of like a fad. And yeah. then it disappeared. And and that's, that's my, you know, my sense too, is that it just feels like for whatever reason, that particular perspective has fallen out of favor or has lost popularity and has been supplanted by, by other perspectives. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't see anything fundamentally wrong with that perspective. It's a model, right. That, that attempts to account for the data biblically and scientifically. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, you know, I think I like part it. of that model, if I'm, if I understand correctly, and I, I may be misunderstanding is that the, the bio, the biosphere is actually a recent creation. Uh, whereas the earth is old, the, the biosphere is a recent creation. And I just, when I look at the biosphere, I see antiquity to the biosphere scientifically, uh, but again, I could be wrong as as to whether or not that's a part of the gap theory. Okay, we'll move into, and I think most people know what young Earth is. We've right. stated it several times. But before you give a summary of it, to the young Earth people, which is the majority of people who just believe God created the Earth in six days, because that's what Scripture says, and anything outside of that, their view seems to be you're going beyond what Scripture says. Mm-hmm. So I just want to tell other people, nobody here is trying to go outside of scripture. It's, did you interpret it correctly? Right. And we're not even saying it's poetry of the time. And it's just, they're they're talking in myth form of a general idea that no, that science and scripture in Genesis does match up, but we may have been reading it in just a modern Western English Mm -hmm. way in our lifetime. And we just assume that's, that was correct. And it, and it may be, but it may not be. Yeah. yeah. So just in brief, what would you say what, to represent the young earth creation? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a view that I think is largely driven by biblical concerns where people that are young earth creationists have a very strong conviction that scripture is teaching that the earth is indeed young uh, and that humans were created recently only you know a few thousand years ago and um you know this this perspective as you said is a a very prominent perspective interestingly enough it does have some uh shared features with old earth creationism or old earth creationism and young earth creationism do have shared features both perspectives have uh, the the view that adam and eve were real historical people made in god's image uh, that both perspectives express skepticism about the evolutionary paradigm. The, the large difference is really the duration of the, the creation week. Is it, again, a vast period of time, or is it uh, six consecutive 24-hour periods of time? Uh, and I'll just simply say this, that you know, I, I, I do see a, a, some, bi- some biblical and theological strengths to the young earth position, but I don't actually think that these, this position is without theological and biblical problems. Many times it's presented as if, as if this position is ironclad biblically and theologically, but uh, we don't have time to go into it. But I actually do see biblical and theological issues with it. And I'll tell you this, that I've never yet to see any compelling scientific argument presented from the young earth perspective that the earth is young uh, uh, and and I just, every argument that I've seen, when I dig into the argument, I, I see some significant flaws that fail to convince me that the, 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 any scientific evidence for young earth creationism to me falls short. Yeah. One thing I like that I've heard Dr. Hugh Ross say several times when he's talking on this topic is you have to get in account all of scripture's account of creation. And I don't usually hear that with young earth. They go by the six day thing and they stick to what that must mean in our modern terms. And even if the Hebrew means something else, it doesn't usually mean that through scripture. So let's just weigh on that. Why would God use something, a one-off? And um, where Hugh's saying, well, what about the book of Psalms? What about Jeremiah? What about Job? Or these other ones that reference creation 
and it adds to Genesis. Yeah. And when you get the wider scope, you start to get a, it starts to fill in some um, gaps. Yeah. That is all biblical. Nobody's here is going outside of biblical. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. And I, I've got a collection of uh, passages of scripture that literally make the point that the earth is old. It speaks about the antiquity of the earth directly. It speaks about the antiquity of the heavens, the skies, the mountains, the rivers. Uh, and so there are uh, statements, and I wish I had that that list in front of me. I could have given you some of those passages. So what's interesting to me is as you move outside of Genesis 1 through 11, not only are you know is an old earth perspective compatible with again, Genesis 1 through 11, but there's other passages that seem to suggest an old earth perspective is preferred, including these passages that make direct direct statements about, about the antiquity of the earth and its features. Yeah. So young earth, I don't know where my position is. I really want the gap theory to be true, but <laughs> that's because I held on to it for so long. You know, I, I didn't really have a, I don't have a dog in the fight, but I just think that old earth lines up so well with scripture and um, I don't take scripture lightly at all, or just want to say, if it doesn't fit my view, oh, well, it's a metaphor or whatever. And what I've heard young earth people say, or it's referred to young earth is where they take the Bible. Literally you have to, well, not everybody takes the Bible all literally and you don't, I'm pointing to them. I, I could be younger. I don't know. I'm, I don't have a strong stance. I think it sure appears to be old and that science should line up with scripture. And I don't think it's twisting scripture, but for instance, Jesus says he's the door. Right. Well, he's not literally a door, but he is the door to salvation and he is knocking and you answer right. his spiritual knock on your heart and he will enter you. It's a perfect analogy or metaphor, but he's not literally a door. Right. But I'll hear young earth creationism like, well, that's the literal one. Or they call themselves biblical creationists. Well, that's really rude. Um, even if I'm young earth creationism, it's just, just an insult to you. I know you're a believer. Right. And you're, everything you're saying is Bible-based, but I'm excluding yours as not biblical. Yeah. Or not. Well, yeah, go ahead. Well, I our often our hear that it's just simply a plain reading of the text. Well, maybe a plain reading of the text for you, but <laughs> it's not necessarily a plain reading of the text for other people. Yeah. And, you know, we want to be careful, as you mentioned earlier, that we're not just simply reading it in our modern context, that we recognize that this was you know, a, a passage of scripture that was given initially to the, to, to people that were descendants of, of, of Israel, right? That, that this is, that this is given to a particular audience who had a, a, a use of language, a use of, of, you know, language devices that may in some instances be unfamiliar to us. And so we, we have to try to put ourselves as much as we can in the context of the people that originally received the, the passages, the, the text, and who uh, we have to uh, understand their the, the, their use of, you know, of language at that time, the use of biblical Hebrew. So, you know, the idea that it's a plain reading of the text is really a false way to approach the text. And yeah, and I don't, there's been a lot of offensive when I talk about it because I don't think it's just, um, oh, it's all allegorical or it's just some kind of way of storytelling. However, scripture is, as you're referring to, and I don't know if a lot of people understand, I just call the Sunday school people, that there's different genres of scripture. There's wisdom literature. It's written differently. The apocalyptic literature is completely written differently. Jesus spoke in parables. That was a form of the day to get truths across without ever saying the truth, um, spiritual truth in physical story form. And then to say this area may not have any kind of story form in its culture or day is just kind of limiting and a little naive, I think. Okay. Uh, Fuzz, I got uh, one left and here's this one that 
where my confusion is, don't these all have intelligent design involved in them? Because these are all except naturalistic evolution. Right. The rest are Christian, if not at least uh, a theist point of view, that there was an intelligent creator and a designer. Right. So what makes this different than that general idea? Yeah. And and your point is really well made. And that is that the, the term intelligent design it is is a really a broad term that I think, you know, uh, evolutionary creationists, uh, old earth creationists and young earth creationists would all embrace. Maybe the, the, the places where design is seen might be considered to be different in those three models, but they all embrace intelligent design. I heard uh, a, 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 a Dennis Lamoureux, who is from Canada, he's a a, a, a biblical scholar as well as a, an evolutionary biologist say that he believes in intelligent design. He thinks God intelligently designed the evolutionary process. Um, but with respect to the intelligent design movement, uh, this is a, 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 a movement that argues that biological systems are are designed, that they have this appearance of being intelligently designed, but that the position is really agnostic on who the designer is and, and, and really is even agnostic on things like the age of the earth, even things like a common descent. And so there are people in the intelligent design movement who are not necessarily Christians, who maybe who might be Muslims or might even be agnostics who are just simply convinced that there is evidence for design in nature, but they again recognize that who that designer is is beyond the purview of science, and they argue that this is simply becomes a theological question. So they're trying to uh, operate as a secular program where they are challenging the mainstream scientific perspective uh, in, in biology with the idea that there's no teleology or design or purpose in biology. They're challenging that mainstream perspective by arguing there's very clearly evidence for design. But again, they uh, see themselves as a secular program, not as a religious program, and uh, again, are agnostic on who that designer is as formally as part of that program. But there are people that I know in the ID movement who are not only Christians, but who would hold to an old earth uh, perspective. Some hold to a, a young earth perspective. Uh, but, you know, I resonate with many of the ideas in the intelligent design movement. There's some ideas that I'm, I don't necessarily agree with, but I resonate largely with what the intelligent design movement advocates. But I just simply feel uncomfortable saying that that designer is unknowable uh, even from science. I think science can not only tell us that there is design, but it can give us some good insight as to who that designer would be. And that insight leads us to the God of the Bible. Well, within the intelligent design movement, I mean, I always felt like intelligent design was just the way Christians tried to argue evolutionism. So is that not true? Or is that just some of the voices within that movement? Or was there kind of a sub-movement of Christian intelligent design as a way to explain it and counter. Is there true groups? Yeah, well, I mean, within the, the intelligent design movement, again, it, which sees itself as just simply making the case that there is design in biological systems, there are people that are young earth creationists, old earth creationists, but there's also, again, people that are Muslim or that hold to, you know, other religious perspectives or even uh, express some measure of agnosticism. So it really is an umbrella position or a catch-all position that really has a very different objective than I think most young earth, old earth, or even evolutionary creationist organizations, where these organizations are really advancing a, a Christian worldview and are arguing that science and faith are compatible. Again, the models are different, but they are arguing that science and faith are compatible and as a result of that, we can we can trust the message of Scripture, whereas the ID movement is just simply saying there is design and they're stopping at that point. 
but they're because again all three positions evolutionary creation old earth creation and young earth creation are in a sense design perspectives uh they they interact seamlessly with the intelligent design movement if that makes any sense yeah it, it makes as much sense as it can for me <laughs> <laughs> hey i appreciate your time we crammed a lot of info each one of those could be an hour long well as an intro to, yeah. to, to dig into the science of them so i appreciate the the overview and i hope that was helpful for people so i mentioned reasons.org is where they can go and um what would they find there or is there anything you'd specifically guide them to if they're interested in this conversation yeah yeah well you know i think the place uh again as you mentioned to go is reasons.org where there's just a whole range of resources that are available to people, many of them uh, that can access for no cost. And it gives you at least a, our, an old earth creationist perspective on, you know, the, the science faith conversation. Also, we have a YouTube channel called Reasons to Believe, which is uh, houses a ton of videos that deal with a wide range of science faith issues. Uh, you know, probably um, a, a great book, uh, that people should consider would be one of these four views books. And there is a four views book that I, I can't remember the precise title, but it has something to do with uh, science and uh, uh, Genesis and uh, yeah, I believe that had, Genesis I, I believe like. that had Hugh Ross, then it had yeah. um, the biologos perspective, the evolutionary yeah. creationism. And I know it had Ken Ham, yeah. I think that had um, the, right. Right. Uh, the six day. Right. The young earth. And I don't remember what the fourth one was. Yeah. And, I, and I, again, I can't remember the precise title and I'm so yeah. sorry for that, but that would be a great book. Also, there's a book that we did at Reasons to Believe with Biologos called Old Earth or Evolutionary Creation, where we engage one another with different aspects of our model. So that's a great way for people to get a more focused diff comparison between you know, uh, an old earth perspective and an evolutionary creationist perspective. So there are some, some great resources that are out there that I think help people get a handle on, you know, on these differing perspectives. Great. All right. Well, thanks for coming on once again. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Ken. Calvin among the outlaws. He said, come follow me. People from all walks of life since have been becoming outlaws. 